Welcome to Crushing Comics. Today we are talking X-Men, but not just any X-Men. We are continuing our epic X-Men reread of classic Claremont X-Men. So today we're going to be covering the issues Uncanny X-Men number 96 and number 97 from the 1970s. We're also going to talk about two backup stories from classic X-Men issues 4 and 5, which are somewhat contemporaneous to these issues. So spoiler warning, not only are we going to fundamentally talk about every possible aspect of these issues, but we could talk about anything else in Claremont's run, and due to the nature of one of the character debuts in these issues, we will almost certainly be talking about spoilers of the current X-Men run, starting with Jonathan Hickman's Powers of X and House of X from 2019. It's kind of just unavoidable. So if you have not read Hox Pox, as people call it, House of X and Powers of X, this is your warning that we are going to fundamentally spoil Hox Pox for you in a matter of minutes. But if you're ready, let's go. I'm here with my two favorite mutants from around the world, my co-hosts, Tyler and Faria. Are you ready to talk about the one and only Maura McTaggart? Yes. I'm so ready. I am so ready. You don't even know how ready I am. But I have to start with saying, what is up with her accent? What is that accent? My God, I can't, I could not deal with it. She does not talk like that in Hawksbugs or I don't know. But it was like, I couldn't tell whether it's like a Southern Bella, Bell thing from Rogue, whether it's like a, like, you know, what accent is it? And Scottish. Then... <laughs> yeah, did it, yeah, did and you then... not get Scottish? You, you weren't getting yeah. Scottish? <laughs> No, I did not get Scottish because I have Scottish friends and they do not sound like that or <laughs> it doesn't come off as that. Because, I, like, you know, I was actually thinking, like, you know, Rani, uh, Rani? Rain, Rani? Rain. 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 Rhymes Rain, with, Rain who shows up later. Pain. Rain, yeah. Oh, that's right. How did I forget that? But anyway, Rain, uh, she, when she speaks, it does sound like an Irish accent, but this did not jive with any accent that I know. Wait. And Rain was, is not supposed was, to be Irish, right? Scottish, Scottish. Yeah, Rain is Scottish. Is she Shamrock, Scottish? Remember? Yeah. Get, get your stereotypes right, Freya. Yeah. Claremont's trying to help oh, you. That's... Yeah. No, Banshee is so, Irish. Foin. Foin. That's Foin. Foin so figure. That's a Foin figure. <laughs> so Rain is not Irish. Rain she's is Scottish. 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 Okay. You know what? In that case, Peter David did not do a good job in in, <laughs> in letting me know that she is actually Scottish because all this time I thought she was Irish uh, because of her extreme Catholicism. Um, but then, um, no, I mean, I was I was actually just like taken aback by that. You know, as much as like I was super interested into seeing her with a machine gun and what the implication of that uh, in terms of in context of Hawksbox, um, I was just like you know the accent i couldn't deal with it well i hope you're ready because claremont loves writing ac accents and yeah. you're gonna get every I... nightcrawler's accent yeah. gets intense rogue's accent is intense there's there's Peter. gonna be a lot this is just the beginning i do think yeah. he's better at edmora over time but yeah. claremont loves to write in accent that that it's... is his shorthand for like you know uh like pegging uh each character's nationality <laughs> Or where they are yeah, from. 
I mean, yeah, like there's only so many times you can have a Native American call an Irish person shamrock. So um, I guess like <laughs> you, you got to find other ways to communicate to, that information. Yeah, you yeah. have to find other ways because, you know, the shamrock tried to out, ex- out accent Moira over here because he was talking <laughs> normally before. I mean, with like <laughs> fairly normally, but then now I'm like, what? What just happened? <laughs> It's, it was, it's osmosis, it was right? So, so the more osmosis. he heard Moira with a Scottish accent, he will be like, like, he like oh, it's my turn now. It's my turn. Irish now. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like a code switching thing, right? Like he was amongst all these people who have relatively, you know, neutral accents compared to his. So he's trying to tone it down. But now that somebody Scottish is there who has a heavier accent than him, now he's just going to let it fly. Yeah. So, um, so look, we're talking first about Uncanny X-Men 96. And there's kind of three plots here which we'll go through progressively. First of all, this is the first filler issue, really. Because this Gary Demon thing is just a one-off. Claremont will come back to it because Claremont comes back to everything. He never forgets anything. He's like an elephant or an ant or something. He always has plots to mine. But in terms of the current sequence of X-Men events, it's not super, super meaningful. Uh, so there's the Ingari stor- demon story. Then there's the arrival of Maura McTaggart, which has modern significance, but also shows that there's something else happening in this issue, right? Because we're intimating mm-hmm. that Xavier might be wanting some time away, even though he's yeah. just assembled this new team. And then there's a third plot, which is the Project Armageddon plot. So we'll we'll get through all three. So let's start with, um, let's actually start at the start, even before we get into the Ingari demon, because the reason it even gets released is because Cyclops is so upset and 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 self-flagellating about um the death of John Proudstar in the prior issue that he's just wandering around the landscape of the mansion's grounds, just mowing down grass and trees with his optic beams. And in the process of doing that, he, um, he uncaps an ancient demon burial stone or something. And, and that's how the Ingari demon comes out. Never noticed previously mm-hmm. on the grounds of the X-Men, or maybe it was, but Cyclops didn't notice it. And here he just pops the cork right off in a classic, classic scene of Claremont mocking Cyclops in his own captions. One of my favorite examples of this in all of comics. Uh, I mean, as as it's probably known or not known, I don't necessarily care for Cyclops and his broodiness. So I feel like this is like the beginning of it. Um, and I was like, I, those captions, it feels like I am writing this. I am writing them. Because, you know, I don't know who's writing them or who's talking because I wasn't sure whether that was his own thought bubble. Um, and then, well, now that I know that it's just Claremont talking, but I'm like, yeah, can you? Can you? Like, you know, but it, he was like, it just like, I don't know. It's just so much brooding. I couldn't handle it. I'll be honest. I was like, oh, please stop. Like, <laughs> this is like a Cyclops, like just Cyclopsness. I don't care for. Well, <laughs> and here a, it is. It's you know, modern reader, readers like love him so much, and there's this whole mm-hmm. Cyclops is right and everything. And I was Why? shocked when I got and started being online reading X Men in like 2010 that people even liked Cyclops. I'm like, don't we all hate him? Because for me, <laughs> the, the Cyclops is like either he's Sadclops as he is here. Or he's like wife leaving adulterer adulterer Cyclops yeah. from later in the run, and I'm like, yeah. where where's the redeeming quality here? Like I don't understand. But you know, he's some people really identify with him, and and that's great. Why? But uh, but I never un- I we never really to, understood it. We need to find these people and we need to talk to them about well, this about like I, what about Cyclops? I, I like, know the two of you don't like that 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 caption. You know, I love Claremont. them. How dare you? I think they're great. <laughs> No, yeah, I you, thought they were 
you frame it as it coming from somewhere external, right? Like it's not Cyclops smoking himself. But you know, um, like this is something that I sometimes do to myself. Like you know, when I when I make a mistake or when I make a stupid mistake, there will be this voice telling me, "I told you, I told you not to do this. I told you oh, to no. skip this thing." So 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 the way I read it initially was like, "Oh, is this, <laughs> is is this?" Oh, so yeah. So you think it is a Cyclops tech talking to himself? In yeah, person? like it's like the 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 Cyclops blaming himself. It's like you know, you know. It's like, you know, you try, but can you? Can you really do it? You know, it's just his inner monologue mocking himself. And I also thought that it's probably Professor X. Just never, right? All captions are just Professor X talking in your head. (laughs) Because, you know, as we have seen over the last two issues, he just moves into people's brain with the uninvited left, right, and center. So I thought that maybe that's one of the things as well. Well, mm-hmm. this is the thing about classic captions that that's people who predominantly meet, read modern sometimes can't, don't handle very well. Not that yeah, I'm saying that you two are not handling them. well. Which is that they're not by anybody. It's narration. But it it's omniscient narration so it does know what he's thinking so it's it's the way of telling us what the character is thinking when the character wouldn't think it for themselves right so i think there's a lot of truth in what tyler said cyclops is beating himself up about this and it's the narration is kind of guiding us through that because they don't necessarily it wasn't the style at that time to let the art tell that alone like if you saw these three panels without the arts and he was just saying, no, no, no. Like, would it come across without the narration asking the question to which he was answering, no, no, no. Yeah. But anyway, he's yeah. he becomes even, you know, I, I was going to say he's an even bigger loser. But but let's, in all seriousness, Cyclops, I think, appeals to a certain kind of reader because he's he's a high anxiety character. He, he, he has everything bottled up. And he feels the need to be right all the time, not because he wants to be right, but because he's afraid of the ramifications of what happens if he's not right. And if you want to hear more Cyclops talk, explain the X-Men. I mean, Jay on on Jay and Miles explain the X-Men probably gets Cyclops better than any other kind of modern X-Men reader slash scholar slash commenter to the point that Jay just wrote a Cyclops issue for Marvel and totally nailed Cyclops in it. So if you really want to hear a a deep Cyclops dive, I would say explain the the X-Men is a wonderful place to start. But Mm -hmm. uh, he knocks the top off of this demon wine bottle and we go back into the mansion and if we just leave aside the Mora subplot for just a moment and talk about the Ingari demon. Is there really much to say about this fight with the Ingari demon? Like, Freya, you know, anything really? I mean, not necessarily the... Not necessarily the fight itself, but it just like, you know, you kind of start to see the team bonding a little bit more, um, like in terms of like, you know, how they're coming together to fight. And we also see like the first time a little bit of squabble between Cyclops and Wolverine that kind of goes on to history, goes down in history. So we see a little bit of that one that like, you know, I was laughing about is like uh, Wolverine saying that, oh, it's funny that I didn't care that I still have the animal side in me. And then Cyclops is like, you know, what's even funnier that demon you think you killed is not dead yet (laughs) (laughs) i thought that interaction was super hilarious and i think like also like you know like um it just it seems like the team when they talk to each other in here it feels a little bit more natural now than it did the first couple of issues like you know that um how easily wolverine calls um 
um, Nightcrawler Elf. Um, you know, it just like I feel like it just moved a little bit better, and you feel like they're becoming a team. Hmm. Tyler, similar thoughts. I mean, you've read this before. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that um, in the first few issues from Claremont, you see the progression of him as a writer. Like, you see him refining and honing his skills in terms of, like, certain things. And um, I think, I mean, like what you said, I mean, the conversation, the dialogue boxes um, feels a little bit more natural and not so clunky. And I think in some cases, I I don't know if this is drawn in the old Marvel star, which is, you know, basically Claremont and Cockrum comes up with a plot. Cockrum went ahead and draw himself and then Claremont fills in the dialogue after that. Yeah, I don't know if they worked Marvel method. Yeah, because but... I think that um, my what I'm trying to get at is that I think that the the transitions between scenes is a lot smoother than some of um, than the two issues before that. There is no abrupt cut in in that sense. And you have to remember that Paramount was writing the prior two issues, 94 and 95, from Linwine's plots. Uh, so it was kind of already set into motion before Claremont got here. So in a way, this is the first, I, th I think, kind of yeah. full Claremont jam. And you have to remember that at the time, first of all, this was shipping bi-monthly at the time. And yep. it was not necessarily a very well-known comic. It had a whole new cast. At the time, the way that you did that on the newsstand is you had to pretty much treat every issue as a person's first issue. And even more so here, because Claremont was still figuring out things about these characters too. So we're there's a lot of repetition in early X-Men. And, it's, and mm -hmm. even 40 or 50 issues from now, there's still repetition, even when it's the most com popular comic on the stands and it's shipping monthly, because it's still somebody's first comic in every issue, and there's no recap pages. But I think, I agree with both of you that I, there's a certain smoothness here, and you can already feel Claremont exerting control over these characters. Colossus starts to fall into his big brother aspect, like after Storm launches her attack and then Gary Demons, Colossus is like, you won't touch her. Um, Wolverine, <laughs> Wolverine has his like first real rage that we see, and he has this great line, he's like, after all my psycho training and hypnotism and drug therapy and praying, <laughs> I'm like, I don't think there is much praying, Wolverine, but let's, you know, okay, sure. Uh, that he still like shreds this demon up at the moment that he gets angry, which and his teammates too, right? Like he's un uncontrollable, which is the, yeah. the first time we like truly get that. And then we also get the hint of Storm's origins, right? In this wordless flashback where she has this mortal fear of of you know being underground, and Claremont will tell that more at length in the next twenty issues. But mm -hmm. it's you know it just feels like he really has a plan here in a way that he didn't necessarily have in the prior two issues because it wasn't his plan. <laughs> there was one funny issue where Wolverine basically casually carved a tic-tac-toe on Xavier's coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. I missed it the first time, but then when it was like drinking it out, tea, ah! and then he's like, "Oh, I'm just going to play tic-tac-toe by myself on Xavier's coffee table." Yes, you know that's happening while, like, you know, uh, he's trying to um, introduce Moira to the team. Well, before we dig into Mora, let's dig into the other subplot here, which is the Project Armageddon subplot. So we already saw the military kind of treat the X-Men a little bit like second-class citizens in the last issue, but Claremont just leans into, like, full potential race war here with Dr. Lang. And is the race war, like, just going to be against the X-Men? He's like, we've got to get rid of these homo superiors, these X-Men, which is, like, a total of 13 possible mutants. This is actually repaired in the classic X-Men issue, which sometimes does some minor rewrites on 
Claremont's mm-hmm. original issues because he also points out that there's mutants on the Avengers like Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver and Beast. But like this is ignoring Magneto. I don't know if he's just like grouping Magneto in with the X-Men, but like people definitely know about Magneto and that he's a mutant. But Dr. Lang's whole point here is like we've got to strike first because if we wait too long to strike, we're just going to be the Neanderthals and, and evolution is going to pass us by. And this is even though there are hints of this in the original Silver Age run, which maybe we'll go back and read sometime, you know, this is Claremont kind of forwarding the theme in this run to say, like, this is a thing. We are going to keep coming back to this. And it becomes a huge thread throughout Claremont's run. It will. Yeah, it will become a very, very big thing, like, later on. Not not only in Claremont's run, but then every subsequent X-Men run since then. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I talked about it before. This is one part of X-Men I'm not interested in. I don't, I I actually don't care for it. That it's just like, oh, these humans are just like, you know, coming and then we're going to cower again. No, shut them down. Like, you know, I, I don't, I don't care for this. And then it's like, you know, he was talking about, oh, we're going to become Neanderthal because evolution is going to pass us by. It already has passed you by. That's right, it's why already you in progress. Mother nature's ahead of you. Yeah, it's already. Yeah, it's like you know, and I it just I. This is like one aspect of X Men I don't necessarily care for, and so the fact that this is kind of starting. I mean, I know that this is coming, but it's just like, ugh, okay, sure, whatever. <laughs> I think the thing that's interesting about it, though, and, and Tyler maybe will have some thoughts on this, is this is the beginning of Claremont seeding near-term plots and long-term plots, and like, all at once, right? And yeah. it's actually quite savvy, and he's doing it in his, you know, third issue at the helm of this title. Of course, mm-hmm. this plot will only come to the fore a few issues from now, but we now, you know, after that, he starts to seed in things that happen 20 or 30 issues later. Yeah. Like, this is a man who's already planning, which is crazy to think about, because again, Marvel was not in great shape at this point. This title was shipping bi-monthly. There was no guarantee that he was going to write X-Men for 16 years, uh, but he's already starting to seed things for the future. Yeah, I mean this this type of issues will surface um every pretty frequently. Like between major arcs, um there'll be one so-called filler issue where the X-Men either don't do much and you have like, you know, a whole sequence of montage and different subplots going on, or you have like one uh once and done A plot. And then you have like different scenes of B plots, C plots, and even sometimes just one liner or one one panel that you will not revisit like until three years later, which is you know in in comics term might be thirty six issues later or something like that. So um, this is just the beginning, as Peter said. Like this is his third issue, and you have like three one main plot and two subplots. And that's just going to explode later on. Well, let's now talk about subplot number three. Which, look, if you've not read House of X and Powers of X, we're going to spoil them so thoroughly. So this is your last warning. We get the introduction of Maura McTaggart. Spoil them hard. Spoil them real hard. Uh, We get the the introduction of Maura McTaggart. Is she a housekeeper? Is she a revolutionary? We don't know, but what we later learn in Powers of X and House of X is that Mora has been a mutant all along, and that she is living set 10 subsequent lives where every time she dies, she reboots right back to birth, 
or pre-birth as we see. And, um, and this is her 10th time through. And she's revealed all of this to Xavier. She's had a relationship with Xavier in many prior lives. And she knows that this is her last chance to get it right. Now, both in that story and in the story as it is exists it is here. It is it what? Is uh, Yeah. Is, is this a last right? chance? Is it? Is yeah. it the last chance? Well, let's, let's not get well, into Life 11 yeah. truth or theories here on our classic yeah. X-Men podcast, okay? So both in the Hickman continuity and in classic continuity, they've just come from some kind of falling out, right? And it's not entirely mm-hmm. defined here, but we get this. He's resummoned her and she comes right back to the island. Now, later, this is partially recharacterized by things like Deadly Genesis, where like we know she had just had her own team getting eaten by Krakoa. And then it's yeah. re-recharacterized by Hox Pox because we know that she doesn't necessarily agree with the direction that everything's going in on top of that but either way she's here and her whole like machine gun moment is kind of explained by the fact that she led a whole life as a secret assassin in life number seven which contextualizes maybe the strangest panel in this her issue as the debut but it's just really (laughs) funny because storm even storm who's the one who understands the least about this modern american culture says why reveal our true nature to this housekeeper you would think storm of all people would like not be so judgy but no judgment from storm and savior says that is my affairs a row but rest assured <laughs> our secret is safe with maura mctaggart safe mm. unto death which just mm. tells me that mr jonathan hickman pays close attention to things because every line of maura mctaggart related dialogue here actually makes perfect sense with the retcon which does not necessarily uh, become the case with every single retcon in comic books but here it works very smoothly all right yeah. Freya unle- <laughs> unle- unleash yourself I know you have so much to say about that talk about Hickman I'm, no I mean okay so the, the future thing is, like, has you to all, yeah so Hickman is my future husband we have already established that it's going to happen one way or another but the thing is like this is where my like I think like it was a couple like you know some episode back I was like I'm a little tired of X of Swords because I'm not sure where it's going but however this kind of rekindled my love for him again because just by the sing the single appearances of her with the machine gun and then the fact that the one whole life came out of that like the machine gun and also like the uh, appearances of the Lang uh, Lang person I mean. Come right, because it's the like, person you know, she just is like, assassinating in that life. Like, it's just all attributed right. to this one issue. Like, right, right. And it's just like, you know, it's just like two panels or like one, sorry, two page and plus one panel came out like one whole life. I was like, this is just genius. I mean, I I loved it so much. <laughs> I just loved it from that point of view. I don't know how Moira kind of transforms into Claremont's run and what her deal is for the rest of it. But the thing is, if I didn't read Hickman's, uh, like, you know, Hawksbox and then coming back to it, I don't think it would have, like, I wouldn't even think about the fact that there's a housekeeper with a machine gun. What's the purpose of that? <laughs> like, I wouldn't even think about it from that point of view. But now that I know all of that, it just like makes it so much better and makes my love for Hickman so much stronger. Tyler, what about you? Well, talking about characters judging like, you know, Moira as a, a housekeeper, the the thought balloon from Banshee when he first when he was going to open the door was like, oh, she must be eighty years old, ugly as seen etc i was like seriously is that your you know your your image of of a housekeeper that she must be old and she must be ugly i mean haven't they all seen mary poppins at this point yeah or or maybe like you know he was just trying 
maybe he was just trying to calm himself down. It's like, don't get too excited. Don't be a horn dog. You know, I don't, I don't know what Banshee's like, you know, thing and, is. I was, and, uh, I was, I was rolling my eyes at this. I'm like, and then the moment he met Moira, his, his full Irish accent came out. It's like, falling figure and things like that. <laughs> I mean, I very, love very Irish accent, that. by the No, I love Irish accent, by the way. I did not like how it's written because as I was reading it, it was not coming through. And I was like, where did it, where did come from and then uh and then Moira opens her mouth I'm like ah please everyone stop everyone stop <laughs> this talking normal accent well I mean talking about this issue and how it links to Hawksbox it actually sends me on a tangent for like close to 30 mm-hmm. minutes because I was thinking of like oh this this um this Nagari monster where where did it come from? Did it come from Limbo? Is it like, you know, one of the demons of MF? And then I went totally off tangent because I was like, oh, you know, is 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 um Hickman doing something like Morrison where he based his entire run on Clare something like Claremont's run? And then the next issue, the next arc in, in, in Uncanny X-Men here will be the Space Saga. And then uh, Hickman might be doing that thing again. And and I just completely went off tangent for like 30 minutes thinking about things like that. Well, the, you know, and the Uncanny <laughs> Demons are demons that have a history. They've been well-defined in the Marvel Universe. You know, they mm-hmm. were on Earth. They are related somehow to Cool and Goth, who got... Um, it was related oh. in turn to Conan. But that doesn't mean that Hickman's not going to draw a line between all of them right here. But you have to just think that, you know, a lot of times Claremont is kind of just flinging something out there. Like, he was an idea machine to the point that a lot of other writers picked up on a lot of Claremontian stuff and kind of developed it further. But in these early Claremont issues, he, you know, he just starts generating stuff. And, I mean, we're going to see that in the hundreds. He just generates yeah. so much stuff in the hundreds uh, of new characters and new plots and things. So, look, there's a couple of fixes that the classic X-Men issue does to this issue. So a few things that it does as it's rewriting and inserting scenes is it reminds us Aurora is technically immune to any variations in climate and temperature, which Claremont hadn't established yet. Um, Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting, Maura says to Charles, a mind needs new experiences to keep it sharp. And she also says, the past is done, Charles, leave it lie. Now let me tell tell me more about your X-Men and what you wish me to do with them, which is funny because again, every Maura line like totally works. It's the magic of Hickman. And um, also, Lang actually does acknowledge there are mutants in the Avengers. They squeeze in a bub for Wolverine, which Claremont hadn't gotten to the bub level yet with Wolverine. And uh, yeah. clarifying a little bit bub. about Storm's flashback. Uh, to, right? So, and of course, in one final uh, recent reference to this issue, although this was in the actual issue and not a, cl- a classic X-Men change, uh, Cyclops, we've learned, is the top man in this outfit. So now we know where those top men are. Ah have been all this time. Thank you, Jerry Duggan. Any other comments on our Nagari Demon issue number 96 before we move on? No, that top man line just made it everything for me. I mean, it was worth it to read classic Claremont just for that. Like, it was worth it. <laughs> and how, like, we have to also give credit to how good Jerry Duggan is because it was just a line that he just threw out and now we know where it comes from. 
Who, right, who knows if they've all been pouring over every word balloon of Uncanny X-Men 96 because it was of more and they've all taken little things. Who knows? We'll never know. So, look, now we come to Uncanny X-Men 97. And this is an issue that feels for a moment like it's just going to be more fill because it's kind of um, starts with Professor X having this bad dream and then they go to the airport. But it's actually the beginning of a lot of other plots that Claremont mm-hmm. is seeding for the future here. So there's a lot of stuff happening, but it, I think we could generally break it down into two big hunks. One, hunk is that Xavier is being plagued with this space dream and we'll talk more about that and the other hunk is they see him off on his vacation only to be attacked at the airport by Havoc and Polaris who've been recruited by Eric the Red which has a lot of confusing implications which we will get to shortly so before we even get the full-on reaction to this one I also want to call out the art in this opening sequence of the space battle Mm. I mean I I don't know that newsprint captured the full glory of this the way that it looks digitally cocked just goes off here and you have to remember this is i mean clearly it draws on a whole history of pulp fiction and and space sci-fi stuff but this is the year before star wars came out so it's not like claremont's like oh star wars is popular now let's throw in some space stuff this is claremont as he typically does reading the zeitgeist of of the world and kind of you know putting in a theme at the same time pop culture was also zeroing in on a theme like that so i just i think the art in the space battle is just wonderful It's, it's almost lurid the colors just feel like they're like bleeding on the page and it's just a really really awesome early example of Cockrum. no definitely i mean the box shape spaceship oh yeah and then oh my god it was it's really good i mean it's probably not um not in line with like modern science science, science fiction which tends to lean um you know more on the side of like sleek and you know either sleek and new like Star Trek or, you know, uh, old, uh, ragged and patch up, like, you know, Star Trek, uh, Star, Star Wars type of situation. Right, like Firefly, kind of like yeah. things bolted on, right. So for this, like, um, bug-like, round-shaped thing, um, it's really more, um, what, Flash Gordon uh, era yeah, type of situation. that Pulp Fiction kind of connection. Yeah. Yeah. And also just the slash of the growing um, inset panels, which on in a comics page would cross the center line of the page to kind of move your eye from one side to the other. It's just like really mm-hmm. a, a brilliant, brilliant layout here. And it, it's a portent of future space stuff that we're going to get in this title. So Freya, <laughs> what is your initial reaction to this issue? Did the space stuff come out of nowhere for you? What did you think about all the Havoc and Polaris stuff? What was your reaction? I mean... Th- it seems like the, uh, the space stuff is like a setup for something different um, that's coming up later. So I didn't dwell too much on it, um, you know, the, other than the fact that what you guys said, the, the first page or like it was a splash page, right? It was like a two side, like, yeah, which the second and looks third page. really, yeah, which looks really awesome digitally, actually. And, you know, I, I moved my iPad around just to kind of make sure that I see it. Like, it's like <laughs> remind, very reminiscent of like an old timey, space like that right you know i feel like it's done better now <laughs> like it, it just is uh but the thing is like you know at, at that time from that point of view it was it's done really well so i didn't necessarily dwell too much on that uh, the thing is though i find havoc to be i'm sorry i find havoc to be very boring even more boring than, than cyclops <laughs> so that kind of just like went over my head as well. And also Eric the Red, I'm not sure what his deal is and whatever. <laughs> so 
to me, for some reason, this felt more felt more like a filler issue than anything. Um, like you know, I was like, sure, but then they also kind of ruined a lot of like caused a lot of like property damage at an airport. I'm like, now I know why people don't like mutants. <laughs> <laughs> you know they just showed up and then, and then but i was also going like what the, what are our genes doing there so that was just a, like another confusing part but you know overall this felt more of a filler issue to me well just to cap well, the the space yeah. comments and then we'll get into the the rest of the plot Clarence planning so far ahead again this was shipping bi-monthly at this point but this space stuff doesn't come into culmination until what like 105 106 which is over a year away for him at this point even though we yep. will briefly be going into space but not this Correct. space plot not this space. a different yep. space plot so again just like the confidence blows me away but Tyler why don't you talk a little bit about um Faria and and the idea of the filler in this issue well, I mean, it's the same thing that he 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 will be doing. But I mean, in in this case, I think it's more of starting a new arc. So there's something new that will continue next few issues, and um and then there is this other subplot that will be lingering around for you know a while, and then they will address it. Um, so this is going to be, Faria. You have to remember this. So these are the things that you have to remember. Everything matters in Claremont's run. Like, no matter how tiny, you'll be like five, 50 issues later, you'll be like, oh, wait, didn't we see this like in one panel and it was being brushed off as like nothing? And that kind of thing. Like, this is what's going to happen <laughs> later on. Some of it, I would say, is by design. And, and based on some interview, some of it is not really by design. It's basically Claremont forgetting the plot <laughs> that he that he uh. that he has written, and then he, I I, I remember there's one panel where Claremont where Claremont talk about his the, his process and with um Nocenti and 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 Louis Simonson. So so they will say they told the story of Claremont always after some time will come into the office and say that oh I've I've ran out of ideas I don't know what to write anymore you know and um I'm I'm getting really stuck here and then Nocenti and or, or Louis Simonson would be like oh what about this thing that you mentioned like 50 issues ago what about this thing that you mentioned like 30 issues ago and then Claremont would be like oh yeah and then he would went back and 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 create a whole story out of it so so the, the the short version of this is just pay attention to everything. Yeah, so the, I, I really wish I could do that. And that's, that's I think, one of my shortcomings of being an X-Men reader. I just don't do it like that. I just, like, you know, I don't read comics like that. I don't read anything like that. So if it is important, I don't... I always believe it's not my responsibility to remember that. It's the responsibility of the writer to make sure that if something is important, it's done that way. So now, and then it makes perfect sense. Like if he wasn't even thinking about that, this will become important and he doesn't need to do that. But the thing is, to me, I'm like, sure, maybe it will be important. It won't be. Uh, okay, we'll see. But I think as of right I now, actually... I don't think like... No, go ahead, sorry. Oh, I was going to say, I actually am really similar. I know I tend to have a reputation as this, like, you know, steel trap of continuity, but not not as much as Zach. But um, I, I kind of feel like I don't want to remember every single thing that happened in every single issue. I'm much more of 
weirdly the DC hypertime kind of person of like if it's important the author will remind us that it's important mm -hmm. so I get very annoyed when an issue like does something without any kind of reference and we're supposed to just remember something like oh right that was from 18 years ago when blah but Claremont will remind you Claremont yeah, will, he will not he will not let you forget you'll get a whole re revision of the previous and, issue yeah and to me to me to be to be the honest that is a sign of a good writer yeah. I think like you know it's not just not just necessarily because I find it to be extremely like you know gatekeeping that if someone is like not reminding you something that happened not necessarily in the same run because then it's like okay you're reading a collected and you should know that but something that happened in a super like 100 years ago and you have no idea and then they're kind of using it in a way that you're like no context and then they don't give you any reference because it's like oh you should be reading it no sir or madam i shouldn't i don't have to read anything what? you know there's a reason i picked this you know but, they, but most of the good writers don't actually do that like you know most of the good writers even like you know the one we are reading in docs and stuff the references that are there it really doesn't matter if you know it or not you know like maybe you're getting a little bit more even if i don't know it i'm not like it still map works fine you know people talk a lot about you know, and I've said already in this episode, like, oh, it was a different time. The comics were in the newsstand. They each had to stand on their own. They, there was no concept of collected comics or anything like that. And I, that's all a factor. But I just think, you know, th it's interesting how the style of editing has changed over time, too. I, mm -hmm. I think growing up on comics like these trains readers in a certain way, right? It trains us to believe that continuity matters because continuity matters, because people are referring to it all the time. But it also kind of trains us to think like, okay, well, it's going to matter when it matters, and, um, and it's going to be referred to when it matters. And I think that establishes a certain kind of mindset, especially for people who grew up with a lot of comics that are like these Bronze Age comics. Whereas I think the editing in modern comics, there's almost like a resistance to putting in a caption box. Maybe they'll remind us on the recap page, but it's kind of like, oh, if we're on issue 45 of this run, we assume you've been reading this run the whole time. Um, so you, you've got to just remember all these things. Claremont wouldn't assume that you remembered something that happened two oh. issues ago. And it's just like a very <laughs> different kind of reading. And I know, again, that it's because the environment is different. And there's no more newsstand and all of that. But I also think that I don't know if that change in editing is to the betterment of the entire industry. You know, you do get modern readers who can't stand classic comic books like this because they're like, it repeats so much stuff. And that's kind of a d divide that's hard to surmount for somebody like me who grew up with these where I'm like, but this is the way comics are supposed to work. So it's, yeah. it's a very generational divide, I think, mm -hmm. depending on what generation of comics you came in. You could be somebody young today, like my kid, who's reading Uncanny X-Men and she does expect comics to be like this. So it's not to say that it can't work for a six-year-old today. Like she expects there to be caption boxes that over-narrate everything. That's just what comics are to her because she reads Uncanny X-Men. So um, one example of this is uh, Eric the Red, right? So Eric the Red in, I have not read all of Silver Age X-Men straight through, but I've read a lot of it at different times. And I have read those issues. Eric the Red was Cyclops getting into some like some S&M gear to break into Magneto's base of operations and be like, what? I'm a, look at me. I'm a villain. Let me hang out with you guys. <laughs> so everybody is like super confused here because they're like, wait a second, that TNA costume is not Cyclops. I just love it because it's a great example of a, of a men's comic costume that is like just as ridiculous as costumes that women wear in comics. But that's why, and that's why it's like even weirder that he's recruited Havoc because originally he was Cyclops. And, and so there's like a whole level of like subterfuge and manipulation. Claremont references a lot of stuff from the Silver Age, but as he starts to generate his 
own ideas here in this run, the Silver Age run of X-Men becomes less and less important. And this mm-hmm. is one of the times that it actually does help a little bit to have known the Silver Age, yeah. but they give us a caption box and they do explain it. Of course, yeah. so let me stop there. Um, Eric the Red, I, he's one of these uh, characters where is his only power being large? Like, what what threat does he pose to them exactly? Well, without the additional pages in uh, that Claremont later inserts in classic X-Men during the reprint, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he's just large and looming. And for some reason, he was able to convince uh, or, or, or somehow make... Alex and Lona attacked the X-Men, who are their friends. Um, and that's all I, th- I, I knew of him. I, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, when, when I was reading this uh, the second time or the third time, uh, that is without the additional pages, I'm like, oh, okay. What is he? What, wait, what? <laughs> that was I my... That he, his, I thought that his power was... Mind manipulation, no? Or like hypnotism? Well, he that was, was manipulating people's minds, but I don't know yes. if that. So we will find this out. He does. Claremont doesn't just leave this hanging. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a plot that we will come back to. I will say though that I'm not a tremendous fan of Ed Pisker's. Um, what is that darn book called? Uh, Grand X Men yeah. Grand, Grand Design. Design. Because I yeah. think he takes a few too many liberties with X Men. But when it comes to explaining the Silver Age and how the Silver Age transitions into Claremont and how some of the things were probably kind of in progress in the background already chronologically in the Silver Age, he actually explains this Eric the Red thing really, really well. So if you like this plot point, but you've always been befuddled by it, potentially for the past, you know, 45 years, I don't know, um, you maybe could read X-Men Grand Design and it will explain it to you. Of course, before we get to the airport fight, we get Lorna and Havoc who are just out hiking around, being geologists and archaeologists like they love to be. And while Alex is off on a hike, Lorna has... Lorna has this scene where she's like, man, I feel like a woman. <laughs> like, uh, because she just, Alex just makes her feel like a natural woman. It's such a strange scene. And it's kind of like, yep, Claremont hasn't figured out anything to do with these characters. No, they have not. So the other thing I'll mention, and then I think and- we, we really could be done here. Oh, Freya, what do you want to chime in with there? No, I, I was just going to say, though, and like, you know, how far we have come, right? right? At least at least with Polaris. I'm glad. I'm glad to see that we have come a long way since since this version. Havoc, on the other hand, who cares? If we are talking about Polaris from now all the way to (laughs) X-Factor, the new X-Factor, the newest X-Factor, you are going to be really annoyed. Yes, she suffers a lot of indignities. Of all the X-Men characters who've had a lot of indignities happen to them, Polaris is pretty high on that list. Oh, no, no, I mean, I read uh, War of Realms. No, not War of Realms. What, sorry, War of Kings. Like, you know, the whole space saga yes, where yeah. she was in it. Yeah. I was, like, rolling my eyes yeah. at that so much. Like, it just, like... The, I mean, it's... And then uh, what I'm saying, though, we have come a long way since then. But, oh, Havoc yeah. is so boring. I can't... I can't... Why is, like, why are all these cyclic summers are so boring? Except for that one crazy one. But, oh, these three two of them are not... Oh, Balkan is my man. He's like insane. But otherwise, like, they're just so boring. I don't know. 
Well, to end on an art note, uh, again, as we began with the space scene, we get a pretty awesome look at the X-Men all in plain clothes in the airport. Nightcrawler even uses his image inducer, here referred to as being from Tony Stark, Stark. uh, for the first time to kind of appear as not blue to go out in public with the X-Men, which gets commented upon in one of these classic X-Men backups. And the fashion, I just... Cockrum's choices here for Storm and Jean in the airport. Storm is in this like beautiful green like caftan and Jean is in this like neat little outfit and I just love it. I really love when we get somebody who's tuned into like what people might actually be wearing at the time and we get a little bit of present day fashion and I just Mm -hmm. think Storm and Jean look so cool here. It really always sticks out to me how fun it is. And you know that they did the shopping in it like you know that one shopping trip that they went to in the backup issue. That's when right. Claremont gave us the ar- origin of Storm's wardrobe in in <laughs> yeah. the, in the cl- classics. But also we get Storm having this like mega moment against Polaris. Mm-hmm. You know they had worked together in Giant Size X Men, and here they're facing off. And I often at the beginning of X Men kind of wonder if Claremont hadn't decided yet if he was going to do Dark Phoenix with Storm or with Jean, because there is this one this one sequence where Storm just goes total Dark Gladriel and. Yeah. Like, Totally, there's like black all around her and the Kirby crackle on the page. And she's yep. got her hand out like this and it's just really pretty cool. But it also, it's, um, he, Claremont always flirted with having Storm be the one who would have mm-hmm. too much power. But then yeah. he just went the other way and it wound up being Jean. It's like, this is no game, Polaris. That's what she said. And then, can I, can I make a very like, you know, uh, off, off color joke about this? Because I feel like if Dark Venice was done by, done with Storm, uh, Hollywood stopped making that shit like again and again because it's like oh yeah black character we don't care we're not gonna do that <laughs> mm. but because it was done with a lily white character we have to just keep doing that not god awful thing again and again sorry I haven't please. read Dark Venus yet yeah please yet, do not so judge see... the comic story uh, yeah, with I'm that go- two awful I'm movies going to... yeah, no, the I'm movies going to reserve are, I... it no, no. So here's the thing. I'm not judging it based on the movie. Like, movies are awful. We all know that. Yeah. But I'm just talking about how it keeps on coming back, even within the comics. Like, everyone shut up about it. Oh, my God. But got to reserve my judgment until I read it. So... Yeah. Well, and the other yeah. thing, too, is, I mean, we, we could do all, maybe we'll watch the movies at some point and comment on them, uh, but yeah. Storm yeah. always gets short shrift in the movies, and it's like, oh. this is the best character. Oh she's the yeah. character with the most lines in all of Claremont's X-Men. She's the one who's the most developed, and she's always like, you know what happens to Toads when they get hit by lightning. Like, there's no, Storm <laughs> never too- comes across in the movies as great as she comes across in yep. the comic books. So I'm hoping, yep. Faria, I mean, you love Storm already, but I'm hoping that this Claremont oh, yeah. read is going to make you love her even more because I think yeah. you can't help but fall in love with Storm as Claremont figures out who she who she is. And also, I mean, Storm here is seen stopping Wolverine from lashing out at Cyclops. And this is not the first time she's doing this. Mm-hmm. So like you know, and 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 you contrast this with the latest issues of Marauders, where basically, you know, if if they were discussing about Wolverine stabbing uh, Saturnai, um, and sh- her basically giving the permission, yeah, Wolverine, you know, Wolverine still is 
still defers to Storm. And she, and she has this yeah. great moment of like, or you will answer to me. And yeah. Wolverine, who usually will back talk to anybody, does not back talk to Storm because exactly. it's already established that you do not mess with Storm. And then this ends on an iconic paddle, in my opinion, which is Lang from the last issue with Project Armageddon watching the X-Men and then somebody else watching Lang. And Lang, it's great watching like, the X-Men. Picture in picture in picture uh, panel, which I just think is great. And the hand, all the pose is the same and the framing is the same. And I just think it's really a clever, hilarious soap opera kind of moment. So any final comments on so, this issue before we roll on to the classic X-Men issues? No, I mean, to that point, though, it's like this was written like, what, 76, 77? Like yeah, some, somewhere 76, around that. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like uh, surveillance were not this big <laughs> Like, you know, the fact that, like, this means, like, you know, this is, like, comes so naturally to us now that we're being watched like that. Like, I wouldn't even bat my eyes. But back in 77, someone to watch the watch the watch, that's a bit much, you know? <laughs> so I thought that that was, that to me was, like, I was laughing about that. Because I, it took me a while to realize, wait, is that another hand just, like, you know, then I was like, oh, no, there's some buttons, there's buttons, and then there's buttons again. I was like, oh, Jeez, like you know, technologies in comics, <laughs> and now it's the a normal classic X Men like, revision. Now it's like oh. you have surveillance everywhere. Yeah, now you wouldn't even. You'd be like, probably somebody's watching us, watching ourselves, no, watching. Right everyone will be using yeah. the handphone footage. Exactly, like you know, now this would be already in the YouTube like a thousand times that uh, X Men destroys the airport. So there's only really one significant revision in the classic X-Men revisions to this issue, which is that Havoc, hilariously, gets an I love Lorna scene that's equivalent to Lorna's Ugh. man, I feel like a woman scene, just so just so there's a little bit more equality in their relationship. It's really not worth chasing down. So now well, let's isn't that isn't there another uh, page here? Oh, or was it's it? It's just the more last exposition page? about Eric the Red. Claremont just says no, that's Cyclops true. That's remember true. That's more. True. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. So in classic X-Men number four, we get a really interesting backup story, which is Wolverine and Nightcrawler having some early bonding. And it's really fascinating because, A, Wolverine mentions a lot of things that the team doesn't necessarily know about him at this point, like his adamantium bones and, and that his claws come mm. right out of his hands. Like, Claremont will play that out in X-Men, so it's a little apocryphal in that way. But it also gives a little bit more about Nightcrawler's love of theatricality and his uh, kind of fantasies of being a movie star and his love of the image inducer for that reason. And it ends, I think, in a really surprising sequence of Wolverine challenging him to just walk around and be out effectively, be out as a mutant. Which again, I have not read all these classic X-Men stories before and I was really surprised to see Claremont deal with this be out and proud kind of story beat so early. But then I have to remember that he's writing it you know, in 1986, yeah. and he's inserting it here. Also, hilariously, he makes it contemporaneous with Star Wars here, even though originally this issue came out way before <laughs> Star Wars, but he kind Star of mushes the timeline together so that it works. Yeah. Uh, Freya, Tyler, any thoughts on this classic X-Men number four backup with Wolverine and Nightcrawler? I mean, it's just like a, um, talking about different types of mutant mutant hope mutant dome right i mean it's, right. it's easy i was kind of rolling my eyes a little bit i was like it's easy for Wolverine to say be out and proud i mean man can hide his claws and he appears normal human even though he stinks a lot um so to kind of just just say that i feel like it's it's a little insensitive but i think it kind of jives with how wolverine is and then how he would kind of mm -hmm. want to want to deal with it but it's also kind of makes 
uh, like, you know, refers back to Wolverine and Nightcrawler's relationship or their friendship. Um, so I was kind of happy to see that, hey, it's starting here, even though, like, yeah. you know, we see that it goes into some weird tangent. And if you have to believe some of the covers, takes it a very weird tangent <laughs> <laughs> that you're like, what is that about? Yeah. <laughs> Seven, number number well, seven by, I mean... by Greg Rucka. So go check it out. Uh, but the thing is, like, it, <laughs> like you know, so, but it, it, it just, I think it works. It works in a way that, you know, to kind of say that, hey, you should, like, you know, you should be in um, one with your skin and don't, don't worry about it and stuff like that. But I don't think Wolverine's method was it. No, I mean, this was um, one of the questions that I noted down. As I was going to ask the two of you, like, what do you think of Logan's arguments that you should not be ashamed of who you are and show the world exactly what you are? Because I have the exact same arguments. I mean, it is easy to say that when you uh-huh. look human, when you look like right. Wolverine, and right. that, you know, people don't mess around, you know, even after they look at, I mean, they look at you and they're like, okay, I'm not messing with this guy. But exactly. if you're like different in a different way, like if you're big, for example, you know, are you going to be, are you going to tell big like, oh, just be yourself, head out with your two feathers on your wings and a big mouth, you know, no, I would just, that kind I of just thing. say big, no, big should just not show his face anywhere. <laughs> well, and, and like and and to make it a little bit more personal, right? Because um, I'm gay, and uh, when I'm growing up, I is very difficult for me to to say that oh, you should just be yourself and come out in Singapore, um, because okay. as much as Singapore is a modern city and you know and progresses a lot, um, when I was living there, it is a very small country, and most people, including my parents, are a little bit conservative. Um, not so much that they will disown me or something, but you know, me coming out would actually hurt them a lot. Um, it would make them sad, and I was really trying not to do that, um, and I still have not done that. Um, so, so this this. This whole scene plays out um, kind of um, pretty personal to me. Like, you know, it is easy to say that just come out and be yourself. But there are different considerations to take into account of. Like your, like being who you are, how does it affect the people that you love? Instead of just thinking about myself, like, oh yeah, I have to live the life um, and be myself, you know. So that that kind of like um, struggle, I kind of understand that a little bit here. And I, yeah, I, th- I mean, I think there's fascinating levels to it because on one side, you do have that kind of blithe privilege of Wolverine. Whether you want to say it's the blithe privilege of somebody who's passing, right? Like he's he's yeah. non-mutant passing. Or the blithe privilege of somebody who's tough enough to be like, nobody's ever going to say anything to me about it. Or any other number of privileges, right? The privilege of somebody who's already accepted by their family. The privilege of somebody who has no family and they don't care that if they're accepted by family or not. And, yeah. and so there's that way to read it. But then there's also the way of like, Wolverine's got a long history, some of which he remembers and some of which he doesn't at this point. And there's a way to read it as, of him as somebody who's very wise and saying like if you don't start being your 
out and being yourself in some small place where you can have control and comfort over it, then do you ever get to be yourself anywhere, right? Like, it, you know, is it enough that Nightcrawler's just himself with the X-Men? Or or is it, should he find some other places where he's comfortable too? And there's this great moment where they first walk out of Harry's hideaway and Harry is kind of like, he's a, he's a fine blue man with a fine tail, you know? Um, and I, you know, I, it's not for me to say which of those perspectives are right or if Wolverine was right or wrong right here, but I, I do think there's two interesting reads on it, right? Is it the read of privilege on it? Or is it the read of somebody who's wise enough to say you've got to start being yourself somewhere and i and i just think it, it's an interesting question it doesn't have to have a definitive answer and i also like and, and, the range of like responses right to yeah. from immediate yeah, acceptance to curiosity to outright hatred mm. you know so i i just like that there is a nuance to it and not just like oh everyone is just going to reject you because you look different or everyone is just going to be kumbaya with you because you're the hero of the story. So I, I kind of love that, you know, different, um, that, that the whole range of, of, of responses uh, or, or that you can expect from, from, from people like that. So. And I think that that kind of uh, also um, combines with what Peter was saying, that you have to start somewhere because how else are people are going to accept you? But then at, at the same time, I felt like Wolverine was being way too pushy and didn't necessarily provide him with the right, like, you know, right time. Like, it was more of a dare than, hey, let's just try it. Like, I don't I don't know. I mean, that kind of didn't quite work with me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mm. kind of like that, that there was a nuances to that because I read a lot of queer comics and I, one of my, my argument, like, you know, my kind of, not, hatred is not the word, but, you know, kind of complained about that. You get two responses. Abject hatred and then, you know, like people are just disowning their children or like, you know, everyone's just super happy. So it just like, I just like that, even though this is not necessarily, this is more talking about mutant, um, you know, we kind of get that, get that um, whole range as well. But, it, mm. but but I think like it just kind of brings up a conversation of like, it's, I was just thinking about that meme where it's like Cyclops uh, was crying in a tour, like it's like, oh, the people laughed at my visor and then <laughs> beak glob and everyone else was just looking at like, huh? I was just kind of thinking about that a little bit. <laughs> that is like, hey, it's easy for you to say that, but not necessarily everyone can do that because of whatever other reason going on for them. Hmm. Well, I would say if you haven't read this one, a lot of these classic X-Men stories are uncovered gems for me, a huge X-Men fan mm -hmm. who's kind of browsed them to put them in the right place in cont continuity, but never really like sat and thought about them. And so far, uh, they've got a pretty high pedigree and you can get them in the classic X-Men omnibus. You can get them in a series of classic X-Men paperbacks. Uh, and that's all linked from my comic guides. And I'm sure you can find them because if you type in classic X-Men, you will probably find them. We have one more story, not similar theme, but not mm -hmm. quite maybe as developed this one which is in classic x-men 5 this by the way is probably set more in the timeline of the issues that we talked about in our last episode during that montage sequence in 94 yeah. colossus is kind of just out in the russian community in new york in new york and in brooklyn and kind of just drawing and sketching he meets this russian ballerina they briefly fall in love and then when he defends her from being kidnapped back to the homeland 
Um, he, she sees him as a mutant and she hates and fears him and then they immediately break it off. Really, in a capsule, it has all of the same themes as the Nightcrawler story, just arranged yeah. in a different order, right? That she's saying that like she's here to be who she is and live her life and be a ballerina and she couldn't have done that in the same way back in <laughs> Russia. And so then Colossus is inspired that he can be himself in front of her and that doesn't go well for him. So it's almost mm-hmm. kind of like the other side of the coin from the Nightcrawler story. Uh, I didn't find this quite as dense with thematic material, but why don't we hear what the two of you thought about it? Well, I mean, it is Colossus, so I kind of like it. That <laughs> <laughs> is a Colossus man. But, I mean, but the 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 thing is this, like, this is not, um, I mean, this is sort of, like, done backwards, right? Because it was, like, Claremont writing this character for 10 years and then um, inserting this story right up front of, of, of the run. Right. And, um, De- developing classes as an artist did not happen until quite in the middle of of, of Claremont's 16 year run so so um I mean I kind of appreciate that he sort of seeded seeded it here um and um I do agree Peter that the um there's not a lot of uh nuance you know compared to the previous story um regarding coming out you know being being outing yourself to someone um, and being yourself. But I have to say that I do love the last um, scene of Colossus where he was thinking to himself, um, you know, and it goes from day to night and he finally just said, nope, I don't accept your rejection. And mm. he tears away his picture and he just walk away. I think that's, so, that's really to me- interesting. Priya? No, I was saying that to me that it's thematically, it's not necessarily in terms of being out, like, you know, from queer point of view, but it's mostly from the immigrant experience point of view, mm, because they're yeah. both immigrants in, uh, in America, but then they both have pretty much the same dream, but, or maybe they have like a different, uh, like they, like, for example, um, I'm forget, Anya doesn't necessarily miss Russia because her dream was squashed there. Uh, and then, um, um, Colossus, like, you know, his dream was pretty much allowed to, he was allowed to be who he is, you know, with because of his parents and everything, which he was lucky. But then when they come over here, they're more in the same playing field. But however, they have a different immigrant experience and mm. different dreams and how they're dealing with it. And then the thing, Anya pretty much rejecting him is like, okay, you are not the same immigrant as I am I mean something that we see a lot in pretty much brown communities uh that there are a different level of acceptance or different level of like how much how we assimilate um so from that point of view that it kind of rhymed with me a little bit more um just to see that oh like she was okay with pursuing her dream but then not the way Colossus wants to be like you know Colossus is somehow wrong which he isn't like you know it just so and then also like the whole acceptance how much people are willing to accept like they were like you know you were they're willing to accept him when he's normal passing but not when he is like mutant in his mutant form so that is another type of mutant experience pretty much that we get to see over here um which you know i i think like adds a nuances to two things Absolutely. Well, folks, we've come to the end of our issues for the day. Any kind of parting shots here before we wrap things up? 
excited to continue on because oh, okay. I think like number number 98 to 100 is going to be more interesting, I think. Isn't it? Like more action like? oriented. More and action a, oriented. And probably has a longer lasting yeah. <laughs> implication. <laughs> And a lot okay. of great panels and a lot of Jean yeah. Grey. So I'll be happy because I love Jean Grey. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, no. I, I thought you were going to say, I'll, oh, no. No, no, no. I was going to say that. Well, in that case, I'll be happy too because I am really fascinated to figure out what who Jean Grey is and why Peter likes her. Because as of right now, I have nothing. Well, you're... So, uh, one of these issues, so, I forget if it's 99 or 100, but it has my favorite Jean Grey panel of all time. It actually used to be the header of my Twitter, so we will talk about that next time. If you want to continue awesome. reading along with us when we come back for another issue of our classic Claremont epic X-Men reread, next time we're going to be reading the classic Uncanny X-Men 98 through 100, so 98, 99, and 100. They were reprinted in classic X-Men 6, 7, and 8, so we're also going to read the backups in classic X-Men 6, 7, and 8, as well as perhaps we'll see when we get there if it makes sense, read the backup in Classic X-Men 16, which is around the same time as these issues as well. So until then, thank you so much for listening and so much for being with us here on Crushing Comics. On behalf of myself and Tyler and Faria, we can't wait to talk to you again next time. So please subscribe and tune back in. Bye.